Jessica, a third-year EM resident at UC. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about several articles that relate to fresh whole blood transfusion and trauma resuscitations. So this is a resuscitation fluid that's commonly used in traumatic combat injuries, and it's now starting to make its way into civilian resuscitations as well. To set the stage for these articles, it's really important to know that there's a fair amount of military data suggesting that warm, fresh, whole blood transfusions in trauma patients, something that the military has been using for years, may actually have a survival benefit when compared with patients receiving component blood products. That's the standard of care in the civilian world. So some of the combat literature points toward improved mortality with whole blood usage and a trend towards decreased transfusion requirements. Because of this, there's increasing research as to whether or not this is something that's feasible, safe, and effective for use in civilian trauma patients. So the first paper we'll be covering today is actually the first big uh, retrospective review of the military use of warm, fresh whole blood. My name is Brittany, and I am also one of the third-year residents here at UC. So in this trial, the authors wanted to evaluate whether there was any beneficial effects of warm flesh whole blood used in combat situations. To do this, they conducted a large retrospective analysis in a U.S. military population across six hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan between January 2004 and October 2007. Any patient during that time who was transfused at least one unit of red blood cells met inclusion criteria into the study. So of these patients, they grouped them into a warm, fresh, whole blood group. These patients were transfused at least one unit of warm, fresh, whole blood, as well as red cells and plasma. They also had a component therapy group who were transfused red cells and plasma, but were not transfused warm, fresh, whole blood. One thing that's important to note in this study is both the warm, fresh, whole blood, as well as the red blood cells used in this population were not leukoreduced as they typically would be in a civilian population, which does change some of the risk factor profile of what they were doing. These authors hypothesized that patients who were given warm, fresh whole blood would have improved mortality at both 24 hours and 30 days. So to evaluate their primary outcomes, the authors did a couple different statistical analyses. First, they simply performed univariate analyses of all patients, to determine any variables that were significantly associated with 30-day survival. Once they found variables that were significant and associated with survival, they then developed a multivariate regression model to help determine which of these had independent effects on mortality. For the purpose of the study, when they were calculating the total number of red blood cells or plasma transfused, they counted one unit of warm, fresh, whole blood as equivalent to one unit of red cells, one unit of plasma, and one unit of platelets. They also took into account the volume of anticoagulative and additive that the patients received with their blood product, as patients receiving component therapy would typically receive larger volumes of these as they do require more anticoagulant and additive to stay fresh. Other variables the authors considered when looking at survival were Glasgow Coma Scale, patient's injury severity score, their temperature, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, hemoglobin, INR, and their base deficit, all of which were measured at time of admission. So they were able to find a total of 354 patients that met their inclusion criteria. A hundred of those, so about 30%, were included in the warm, fresh, whole blood group, and the other two-thirds of patients comprised the component therapy group. 
For both groups, all their baseline vitals and laboratory evaluation, as well as markers of injury severity, were similar, except temperature, which was slightly lower in the warm, fresh, whole blood group. Important to note, of the patients who received warm, fresh, whole blood, they only received approximately 30% of their total blood products received during resuscitation were warm, fresh, whole blood. So, when looking at these two groups, just looking at the raw comparison, it was found that total red blood cells transfused per group was similar, as was the plasma to red blood cell ratio. The warm, fresh, whole blood group was transfused significantly less anticoagulant and additive volume and total blood product volume as compared to the component therapy group. Regarding the study's primary outcomes, both 24-hour as well as 30-day mortality were significantly lower in the warm, fresh, whole blood group as compared to the component therapy group. However, renal failure was also found to be more frequent in the warm, fresh, whole blood group and the incidence of DVT and ARDS were also approaching significance as to be increased in this group. Looking at a Kaplan-Meier curve of survival, authors again found an increased survival at 30 days for patients who received warm, fresh, whole blood. Other significant variables that were found to be associated with survival in all patients were the receiving of warm, fresh, whole blood, higher plasma to red blood cell ratios, and lower volume of anticoagulant additive. Non-survivors, interestingly, were found to have received significantly more red blood cells that were stored, as opposed to survivors who actually received less stored red blood cells. So, looking at all of these significant variables, the authors wanted to find out which of them were independently associated, since it's harder to get a good grasp on what things are significant when you're doing a large retrospective study. So to do this, they performed a multivariate regression, and in this regression, they found a significant positive effect of warm, fresh, whole blood transfusion, as well as plasma transfusion on survival in all patients. They found a negative effect on survival of red blood cells transfused, as well as base deficit and injury severity score. So... That's a whole bunch of complicated data we went through, so breaking it down into the basic key points of this study. So the main thing that authors report is a 13% increase in 30-day survival for patients who were in the warm, fresh, whole blood group. It's important to note that this improved mortality is for all patients in that group. It's not necessarily associated with just receiving the warm, fresh, whole blood. That effect, when looking at their data analysis, would be expected to be quite a bit smaller, but was still found to be significant. Even though the effect of warm, fresh, whole blood administration on mortality was smaller, it's impressive that they actually found an effect at all when you consider that only 30% of all the blood volume transfused was warm, fresh, whole blood. So even though patients didn't receive very much of this resuscitation fluid, it still seemed to make a significant positive effect on their overall mortality. Another interesting point the authors found was the negative effect on survival of stored red blood cells. This is somewhat counterintuitive. The authors posit that this is possibly due to red blood cell storage lesion. Storage lesion is what occurs in the breakdown of red blood cells over time. By about day 14 to day 21, red blood cells have impaired oxygen delivery 
as well as irreversible deformation of their shape, which causes them to have vascular adhesion and poor flow and poor ability to transport oxygen. This is potentially an even larger contributor in the military population, as the average time red blood cells are stored in Iraq in this study are 33 days, as compared to the average of 21 days for civilians. Another key point to note is that the effect of the plasma to red blood cell ratio was actually similar in size to the effect of being in the warm, fresh, whole blood group. This is further supportive of studies that came out after this research was done, showing that a one-to-one -one ratio of plasma to red blood cells is helpful for mortality. One other thing this study evaluated was any possible harms or negative side effects of warm flesh whole blood. They did find an increased incidence of renal failure, as well as a trend towards an increased incidence of DVT, as well as ARDS in these patients. Some of the reasons the authors posit these could have occurred would be due to an increased amount of inflammation seen because the blood products were not leukoreduced. So transfusing white blood cells is known to cause an increased inflammatory response. Patients in the warm, fresh, whole blood group were also alive longer than component therapy, so it could be that we're seeing more of these complications in that group simply due to their longer period available for study. They'll need further studies to really clarify the risks. So in conclusion, overall, the authors conclude that transfusion strategies incorporating warm, fresh, whole blood and higher plasma to red blood cell ratios may improve 30-day survival in this population. While the retrospective nature of this study limits our ability to draw precise conclusions, the evidence provided does support the author's conclusion, specifically that warm, fresh, whole blood and the resuscitation of a traumatic military population appears to be beneficial. However, the generalizability of these results to a civilian population remains unclear. We'll need further study to determine whether warm, fresh, whole blood can prove beneficial in a civilian population and whether it's even feasible to be performed in a civilian population. Hey there, this is uh, Jimmy Summers, another of the UC emergency medicine third year residents. Um, so the article I'll be talking about today is called A Randomized Controlled Pilot Trial of Modified Whole Blood versus Component Therapy in Severely Injured Patients Requiring Large Volume Transfusions. And this was published in the Annals of Surgery in October of 2013 by Cotton et al. This trial was the first of its kind and that set out to look out look at the use of whole blood in early resuscitation, specifically of severely injured civilian trauma patients. While there have been in vitro studies directly comparing the hemostatic potential of whole blood to component therapy, studies conducted in military settings as well, uh, the only studies previously conducted in a civilian setting up until this point were uh, two RCTs that were actually done in a pediatric cardiac surgery population, and they were looking at uh, post-operative blood loss, so not super applicable to our ED population of trauma patients. Uh, so in this study, the author's primary outcome uh, that they looked at was whether resuscitation with whole blood would result in fewer overall transfusions as compared to those resuscitated solely with con component therapy. Uh, but the study product they used was actually modified whole blood. Um, this is essentially whole blood that was put through a LUCA reduction filter, which removed the white blood cells to decrease the inflammatory potential. Uh, but it also filtered out platelets from the product. 
Uh, they considered one unit of this filtered or modified whole blood to contain one unit of packed reds and one unit of plasma. And then this was compared to component therapy uh, with physically separate units of packed reds and plasma, uh, which again, this is the current goal in trauma resuscitation. They also supplemented every six units of modified whole blood, as well as every six units of packed reds and six units of plasma of the component group with one dose of apheresis platelets in order to target a one-to-one-to-one ratio of uh, plasma to packed reds to platelets. So this study is a single-center, randomized, controlled trial. Uh, took place in a level one trauma center. In order to be enrolled, their inclusion criteria were patients 18 years and up, uh, meeting the highest level of trauma activation, and those that had active bleeding that required emergent transfusion. Patients were excluded if they received more than four units of uncross-matched packed reds prior to randomization, if they had CPR or a thoracotomy prior to randomization, those with religious objections to transfusions, those with DNR status, pregnant or incarcerated patients. So kind of the usual exclusion criteria that you'd expect to see. But then they added on three more exclusion criteria after their initial study approval in order to achieve what they termed, quote unquote, a more pragmatic design. Uh, So these additional exclusions were patients that the trauma surgeons felt could not wait an additional five to 10 minutes for the first cooler of blood in order for blood typing to be performed. They also excluded patients with blood groups B and AB uh, due to lower resources in their population for these rarer blood types. Finally, partway through their study, they realized that several non-survivable TBI patients were being enrolled and actually disproportionately enrolled in the modified whole blood group. Uh, So they went to the trauma surgeons in the middle of the study and they asked them to add severe TBI as a new exclusion criteria. Ultimately, out of 1,695 patients screened, they were able to enroll and randomize 107 patients, so 55 in the modified whole blood group and 52 in the component therapy. And the primary outcome, as I mentioned before, was uh, to track the quantity of blood product used over the first 24 hours. Their secondary outcomes looked at some more patient-centered outcomes, specifically their 24-hour and 30-day mortality, their length of stay, many transfusion-associated complications, as well as infections. Ultimately, the investigators found no difference between the two groups in either of their primary or secondary outcomes. However, they did notice, uh, like I said before, that there was a disproportionate number of non-survivable TBI patients that had been randomized to the modified whole blood group. So they then performed a secondary sensitivity analysis that excluded these severe TBI patients from the data set. And then among this new cohort, they did find that the quantity of product transfused over the first 24 hours was significantly lower among the modified whole blood group as compared to the component therapy group by about five units of total transfusion. So uh, it was two units of packed reds, two units of plasma, and then one dose of the platelets. Unfortunately, they were still unable to demonstrate any difference in 24-hour or 30-day mortality. So I found this to be a pretty interesting study as it really was the first of its kind to look at whole blood resuscitation in a civilian trauma population. One thing the authors emphasize is their, in their discussion section uh, was that this was a particularly difficult study to implement uh, and conduct simply just trying to get the blood bank on board since this was done at a time when no one was really considering whole blood administration uh, to a civilian population. And it really required a restructuring of the blood processing and storage protocols within the institution's blood bank. 
And being a self-ascribed pilot study, uh, this paper obviously had some limitations. One of the first things that jumped out to me was their enrollment numbers. So the authors were only able to enroll 109 of their nearly 1,700 screened patients. So whenever I see significant patient selection uh, with small numbers like this, uh, in my mind I feel it becomes more of a feasibility study and that while their data is valuable, it's a little bit more difficult to generalize it to an otherwise undifferentiated trauma patient. Another limitation is that this study unfortunately added the exclusion criteria of severe TBI midway through their study. Uh, so in my mind, this exclusion criteria makes a lot of sense because I wouldn't really expect someone who's sick from a severe TBI to really benefit from blood transfusion in the first place. Um, and including these patients probably does dilute the results of the primary outcome. Uh, but anytime a secondary analysis is uh, performed in order to obtain significance, it usually makes me pause and think a little bit harder on how to interpret the results. Ultimately, I don't really have a problem with the delayed exclusion criteria. Um, unfortunately, though, it does eliminate even more of the original enrollment numbers, and we're left with a fairly small cohort of uh, only 33 in the modified whole blood group and 34 in the component therapy. And ultimately, uh, with these low numbers, while there may in fact be an advantage in patient-centered outcomes uh, of whole blood as compared to the component transfusions, this study wasn't really powered to detect it. The study also excluded patients that were uh, so sick that the physicians didn't want to wait uh, the additional 5 to 10 minutes for blood typing in order to deliver a cooler of the study product. In my mind, these are patients that probably would have the most benefit from the whole blood administration in the first place. So it's kind of unfortunate that they didn't have universal donor whole blood available for these patients. Another limitation is the actual study product used. Um, so they use the modified whole blood rather than whole blood itself. Um, and as I said before, the Luca reduction filter, they used removed platelets during the filtering process. And these platelets had to be reintroduced uh, as a separate component. So this study product is not necessarily providing the same hemostatic potential that true whole blood would, um, which actually retains platelets. Um, and as this was done in 2013, now in 2018, we have platelet-sparing Luca reduction filters available, um, which may help to provide more benefit with whole blood transfusions uh, than the product that they used in this study. And so finally, despite these inherent limitations, my big takeaway from this study is that whole blood probably does benefit in the resuscitation of the hemorrhaging trauma patient due to uh, at least its theoretically superior hemostatic potential. And if I have both available, I'd have no problem administering the whole blood as it appears to not have any obvious detrimental effects and may in fact provide some hemostatic benefit. The third and final paper that Dr. Baez will be covering is the initial safety and feasibility of cold-stored, uncross-mashed whole blood transfusion in civilian trauma patients, published by Yazer et al. in the Journal of Trauma Acute Care Surgery in 2016. It's a single-center trial where the researchers in this study implemented a change in practice at their institution, allowing for the administration of up to two units of uncross-matched, leuco-reduced, low-titer, cold, whole blood. Their main goal here was to evaluate whether or not this is something that's feasible in this civilian level one trauma center. And that's because whole blood has significantly different storage requirements, which we'll discuss in a minute. They also looked at if, if this was safe. So specifically, they hypothesized that there would be no increased risk of hemolytic transfusion reactions. After implementing this practice change, they then compared their results to a database of trauma patients who had received at least one unit of red blood cells in the ED. Now, there are many different varieties of whole blood that can be used. One is warm, fresh whole blood, which is commonly used in the military. This has a shelf life of about 48 hours, which is very different from the shelf life of packed red blood cells, which is 42 days. 
So, of course, this would lead to a lot of logistics changes if this were to be implemented in the civilian world. There's also modified whole blood, which is essentially where the blood is filtered for some reason, typically for leukoreduction. This can last up to 5 to 10 days when kept cool. Now, leukoreduction can be platelet sparing, which is the case of the study I'm discussing here, or it can clear the platelets and make them dysfunctional, which we'll see this in another study we'll be talking about. And this is important because it means the platelets would then need to be administered to the patient as well in that case. Now, as we all know, to be ineffective in trauma resuscitations, blood is often administered before blood typing can occur. So one of the concerns with whole blood transfusion is the possibility of transfusion reactions or development of immune complications because the blood still contains inflammatory factors, coagulation factors, immunoglobulins, and things like that. So in this study, the researchers used low titer group O whole blood. They used male O positive blood donors with anti-A and anti-B titers that were less than 100. And they specifically chose this titer level because it came from a retrospective study in 2013 looking at transfusion reactions in the military administration of whole blood. And they found that transfusion reactions were really uncommon with titers below 100, but increased significantly with titers above 100. So when we say low titer, that's what this means. So again, for this study, they implemented the use of two units of cold, leuco-reduced, platelet-spared, low-titer, group O whole blood for use in trauma resuscitations. And the nice thing about this is that it can be given immediately to unstable trauma patients before a type and scream is performed, which realistically is what we're looking to do in the emergency department and pre-hospital setting. So for the methods, eligible patients were male trauma patients with hypotension, defined as a systolic blood pressure less than 90, thought to be due to trauma, and they had to have at least two ABC criteria for massive transfusion. So just a reminder what these are, it's an ED systolic blood pressure less than or equal to 90, penetrating mechanism, an ED heart rate greater than or equal to 120, and or a positive fast. If they met these criteria, they could receive the two units of whole blood and then any subsequent blood product administration according to their needs. The researchers looked at the total blood products used in the first 24 hours and the haptoglobin levels, which they use as a marker of hemolysis. They compared this to a databank of male trauma patients in the preceding two years before the study who had received at least one unit of packed reds, and that was sort of their control group. So what did they find? Well, in 10 months, they had 47 patients who were transfused with whole blood. The median age here was 31, and they compared this to 145 male patients who had received component therapy with a median age of 45. Now, this was a statistically significant age difference, but it's unclear if this is actually clinically significant. The injury severity score was similar between the two groups, 24 in the whole blood group and 19 in the component therapy patients. Their other demographics were pretty similar, except for admission GCS. It was 11 in the whole blood group and 14 in the component therapy group. So this wasn't statistically significant, but I would argue that this probably is clinically significant. So this paper really wasn't looking for a mortality difference between the two groups, but this, in conjunction with the minor difference in the injury severity score, suggests a sicker sicker population in the whole blood group. This can have an impact on initial resuscitation of these patients, including how aggressive providers might be in giving the blood. So, for example, in patients with possible head injury, some providers may have less of a tolerance for permissive hypotension, and they may actually shoot for a higher blood pressures by giving more blood. So this really could have an impact on the total blood product usage. So the researchers actually looked at the overall product usage in each of these groups, and they found that the whole blood group had product ratios that were much closer to one. So they were much closer to the ideal one-to-one-to-one transfusion ratio that many of us strive for. They ultimately, though, found no difference in the total number of components transfused in either of the group for the first 24 hours. 
And in fact, even though it wasn't statistically significant, there was a trend toward more cumulative red blood cells transfused in the whole blood group. And again, unclear if maybe this was because they were a little bit sicker population. In terms of other outcomes, they saw no difference in hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, days on the ventilator, and overall mortality in this retrospective study. Looking at their main goal of evaluating the safety of whole blood administration, they measured serum haptoglobin levels to assess for hemolysis. Because haptoglobin is a scavenger of free hemoglobin, it's thought that it would be low if there's a significant amount of free hemoglobin, as in the case of hemolysis. Interesting, though, they only measured this in seven of the 30 patients who received whole blood and had non-type O blood, which meant these were the patients that were highest risk for hemolysis. And it's unclear really why they didn't measure it in all of those patients, particularly because this was one of their main study points. Regardless, though, the mean haptoglobin level that they measured was 25.1, which was just below their low end of normal, which was 30. This didn't translate into clinically significant hemolytic reactions, though, and no transfusion reactions were reported to the blood bank in either of the groups. This really is my main criticism of this paper, though, is that the marker that they looked at, the haptoglobin levels, do not necessarily translate into clinical outcomes. And while it can suggest hemolysis, it should be used in conjunction with other testing. So if they truly want to assess for hemolysis, every patient should have received the labs, first of all, and probably other tests like an LDH, bilirubin, Coombs testing, things like that. I do appreciate the emphasis, though, on the lack of any clinical difference, because that really is the ultimate outcome. But the question is, does minor hemolysis that occurs with low amounts of blood being transfused, could that result in actually clinically significant hemolysis in patients receiving massive transfusion? And I don't think that this paper really answers that question. So it's definitely something that needs further investigation. So ultimately, this is a single-center cohort looking only at male trauma patients, so the generalizability is quite limited because of that. It's not randomized, so there may have been significant bias in selecting these patients who would receive the whole blood, since this was such a practice change at this institution. And additionally, the comparison group was selected from a retrospective databank and also wasn't random. So again, selection bias may be a factor. What I think we can take away from this, though, is that in this small safety study, administering up to two units of uncross-matched, low-titer whole blood in the initial resuscitation of trauma patients is safe and and feasible. As with anything, though, more studies are needed to assess this further. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget to take a look at the website and the blog post that accompanies this podcast to read up more about these papers. We'll see you next time on the Taming the Shrew podcast.